I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Our text today is going to be verse 13 through 16 in a message entitled, Bring the Children to Jesus. I'm going to preach a short series of messages, including today and then through the next three weeks, on the importance of a multi-generational church and why God calls us to love and care for and minister to all ages, and I hope this will be helpful for us to think through how we're doing ministry and where God might be taking us uh, in the coming years. We know that God created us for relationship, uh, relationship with him, relationships within our families, as well as relationships in our church and in the community. The church has an opportunity to bring people together, and as we bring people together, we bring people together for the purpose of loving one another, learning from one another, and encouraging one another in the faith, as well as helping each other have strength in the struggles of life that we all inevitably face, along with the joys and the celebrations of life. As we think about what a multi-generational church is, I think that we can think about it in this way. It includes each generation being ministered to appropriately based on their age and their stage of life, along with the appropriate needs that they have that come along with those different ages and stages of life, but also interacting with and serving together across those generations. It helps us also to understand a bit of the context that we find ourselves in, in the West and the church in general, and then more specifically in our own community. According to the American Survey Center, American religious identity has experienced nearly three decades of consistent decline. Research has consistently shown that every generation of adults is somewhat less religious than the generation that preceded it. Now, understanding we're using this term religion in a general uh, category to help us discuss these things, and we know there's much more to it than that, but even so, it's a helpful framework. Daniel Cox wrote a piece entitled Generation Z and the Future of Faith in America. He said, we have long known the importance of formative religious experiences in setting the trajectory of faith commitments throughout life. For as long as we've been able to measure religious commitment, childhood religious experiences have strongly predicted adult religiosity. They still do. If someone had a robust experience growing up, they're more likely to maintain those beliefs and practices into adulthood. Studies have also shown that most people who give up on the church and practicing their faith do so before they turn the age of 18. We've often thought about it being that turning point of when they go off to college, that that's the real issue of when they back away, but that's not what studies actually show. They start that process earlier, and then it has a very direct impact as the years progress. There was a recent survey done by Desiree News and Marist Poll that found that only 21% of young adults currently report going to church once or twice a month. Younger people in the West undoubtedly are not in church in the same numbers that their grandparents and their great-grandparents were. 
Admittedly, societal demographics also play a role in church participation and in the demographics of the communities that we reach. For example, West Virginia is currently the fourth oldest state in the nation on average. The state is currently third in the nation for residents age 65 and up. West Virginia's most rapidly growing population segment is over the age of 65. And get this, the population of school-aged children has dropped by 22% in the last 30 years. In the 1950s, West Virginia averaged 46,000 births and 17,000 deaths each year. Since 1997, we have experienced more annual deaths than births, and we were the first state to experience such a natural decrease. In fact, we were the first state in a 10-year census period to experience uh, that reality. Now, with these things, as a church, uh, we should note that we have been very blessed uh, to have a healthy balance across the generations within our ministry. Our membership has remained remarkably balanced, and we've served families and our community with a very healthy and thriving multi-generational ministry. And our desire is to be able to continue to do so even in a way that doesn't reflect specifically the reality of our demographics. We've been blessed with a lot of younger people as well as a lot of older people and in between, and we've been very balanced in that. Now, there are some basic premises that I want to work from in this brief series of messages that I want to share with you just to lay the foundation of where I'm going with this. The first is that life is important because it was God's idea. And because life is important as God's idea, that means that life should be valued and protected from natural conception to natural conclusion. That means that every age is valuable in the sight of God, that all people are significant and valuable in the sight of God, no matter what their age is. As we serve the different generations in the church, we can learn valuable lessons from each one. And a multi-generational ministry has that kind of an effect on the church. Another premise that I think is very important is that we should avoid the idolization of youth as well as the devaluation of the aged. We have a tendency to do both. We have a tendency to think that that which is young is more valuable and that which is older is less valuable. But actually, all are important in the sight of God. And we want to see all equally with dignity and with the love that God would want us to show to each one. There are also numerous examples of multi-generational discipleship in the Bible. And I'm going to make a couple of references uh, to that concept today. And we as a church have a strong multi-generational ministry and relationships in the church. Now, let me tell you why I think that is. The older generation in our church is to be commended because the older generation in our church has maintained a forward-focused mentality. You have loved, prayed for, encouraged, and invested in the younger generations. And we thank you for that. On the same note, the younger generations, I think, have been taught to respect 
and value the older generations, and we have had a very healthy dynamic. So to say it another way, we have not experienced in this church the strife and the disunity and the upset that happens in a lot of churches because any particular generation leans toward their preferences or their opinions rather than trying to work together so that it makes it healthy for everybody. And that speaks directly to the spirit, especially of the older generation in this church, that you have not let those things overtake you, even at times when you might have been uncomfortable with something that wasn't your favorite, or you might have looked at something and thought, why are they doing that? Or why are we trying to do it this way? You've not gotten caught up in any of those secondary issues. What you have said is, it's important that we minister to the most people we possibly can and to do it as faithfully as we possibly can. And we're willing to be a part of that uh, blessing. And you have been. So I want to commend you and know that that is not overlooked. It is also a little bit unusual in churches because a lot of churches have uh, had a lot of conflict over those types of issues. And we simply have not experienced that because of the spirit that you have maintained. Now, as we think about what it means to bring the children to Jesus, I'm going to follow this particular message in the coming weeks with next week focusing on the days of youth and then the week to follow maturity and the fullness of Christ, thinking about those middle years of, of life and adulthood and all that we experience from the time we really enter into that adult phase all the way up until we get to what we would refer to as a senior adult stage of, of life. And then I'm going to close out with the responsibility and the opportunity of the older generation to declare the power of God to the next generation. Like, how can you continue to see your purpose and not just think, well, my time is up. I put in my service. I, I was involved in the way that I could. No, as long as the Lord has you here on this earth and you have strength and health and spiritual capacity and resources and all those things, God has a special place for you in his ministry. And you are just as valuable at the oldest stage of your life as you were at the youngest stage of your life. You're just in a different stage. Now for Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Scripture says, People were bringing little children to him, to Jesus, in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, verse 14, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Verse 16, after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Jesus at this point in his ministry was approaching the end of his life on the earth. He knew that his time was short. He's taking the opportunity to teach and to model for his disciples, a number of important kingdom truths. He is teaching them some things about ministry and about people and about life and about the kingdom. And he wants them to lay hold of these truths. And he does so in part by his example. And we learn here, first of all, that we need to bring the children to Jesus. Notice here in verse 13 and 14. It's likely that 
there were mothers and fathers and older children and others who were bringing the little children to Jesus. And I find the phrasing very interesting because the picture that we get is not just a few people gathering around Jesus. Oh no, everywhere Jesus went, people knew that there was something different about him. Even if they didn't understand the spiritual aspect of it, even if they didn't understand the nature of the fulfillment of what he had come to do, they knew there was something different about Jesus. So they wanted to get close to Jesus. And it was no different in this situation. And the picture that we get is of people bringing these children one after another again and again. The crowd was probably pressing in and it's likely that they were bringing the children primarily for a sense of dedication. Now, I'm sure there were some children who were sick in the group. I'm sure there were some who needed a special touch for other issues in their lives, but the wording suggests the idea of dedication, that Jesus would touch these children and give them a blessing according to verse 16. After all, the laying on of hands in the scripture is used to symbolize the blessing of another. And in this moment, when these people are pressing in and trying to get their little children to Jesus, the disciples rebuke them. They didn't understand what was happening. They thought that the people were bothering Jesus. They saw themselves in a sense as the gatekeepers of the ministry of Jesus. They're kind, of, they're kind of guarding the way to people trying to get to Jesus. And another issue was at that time, societally, children were of little importance. They were often seen as more of a liability than they were as an asset. And yet we learn that no one should ever be discouraged from coming to or being brought to Jesus. A.T. Robertson wrote many years ago, he said, no doubt people did often crowd around Jesus for a touch of his hand and of his blessing. The disciples probably felt that they were doing Jesus a kindness, and yet how little they understood children and Jesus. It is a tragedy to make children feel they're in the way at home or in the church. These men who were his 12 apostles lacked the vision of Christ's love for the little children. How did Jesus respond? He was indignant. He was grieved when he saw what they were doing. And he says very plainly to them, let the little children come to me. He commands the disciples in that moment to let the little children come to him without any kind of delay whatsoever. Why? Because Jesus is the little child's best friend. He loves them with a love that surpasses all other love. And if we want to follow the example of Jesus, we want to bring the children to Jesus so that they can be introduced to the gospel and come to saving faith in Christ, so that they can be instructed in the truth and know how they're to live their lives, as well as be guarded from the destructive lies of the enemy. After all, does not the scripture say that Jesus came to give life and life abundant? But the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. It hasn't changed at all. The enemy wants to go after our children. He wants to keep them from the gospel. He wants to hold them back from saving faith. He wants them to have a lack of commitment, a lack of interest. He wants them to get to those years to say, I don't even believe what I've been taught. And I don't want to follow it at all. 
there is a war at hand for our children. The world is going after them. The question is, will we as God's people and as Christian families and as the Christian church take seriously the responsibility we've been given to bring the children to Jesus? I told you I was going to reference one of those uh, generational discipleship references in the scripture and here's one from the apostle paul in second timothy 3 and verse 14 and 15 he's writing to timothy and he says but as for you continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus So the example is the example of Jesus welcoming them. The example of Jesus saying to his followers, hey, let them come. Jesus has got open arms. Jesus is welcoming the children. And we should do the same. And then the example in Scripture to say, listen, there has to be a passing on of the faith. This is how God designed it. That we would pass on what we've learned and that the younger generation would learn from us. So you say, practically speaking, how can I bring children to Jesus? How can I bring my children to Jesus? I think certainly in the home, it's important that you live with sincerity before your children, that you live a sense of authenticity about who you are. Listen, there are no perfect parents and there are no perfect homes, but there are faithful parents and faithful homes. There are people who desire to honor God and If you're living like the world, but then you're professing to follow Jesus, your children are smart enough to pick up on it because you're the closest example in their lives of what the faith really is. So ask the Lord to help you grow in your faith and live with sincerity before your children. And then spend time in the word and in prayer for and with your children. As we think about the struggle that there is in the world between darkness and light we want to be faithful in praying and asking God to to use us with our children and that we might teach them in the word and lead them in prayer and also pray for them and I would say give your children a clear understanding of the gospel from an early age because you're laying the building blocks of their faith And then you ought to bring your children to church with you. Very important connection between your participation in the congregational life of the body of Christ and the faith that your children are going to take on. Now, let me just say here, I understand that many children and young people don't have that type of home. And I'm so thankful that God often works in the lives of young people that are ministered to through the local church even without that home environment and he brings them out and they come to faith on their own and they live in a way that they were never taught in their home and they set a new trajectory for their family and for their future and maybe that's your situation you don't have a home where God's been honored and the gospel's been taught and the word has been instilled in your life but yet God's brought you to the ministry of this church. We want to encourage you in that. 
And the Lord has been gracious to you to bring you to that point. And we need to realize as a church too that if we have a faithful family, everybody else doesn't. In fact, most don't. And as we think about the communities that we're ministering to, if we're just thinking about ministering to people that are just like us or that come from backgrounds and experiences just like us, we're going to leave out a whole host of people who have never experienced that. So both are important as we think about ministry. And then I think living out your faith and service to others in front of your children is important as well, that they see you living out what you profess to believe. We need to bring the children to Jesus. They have their whole lives in front of them with which to serve God. And the second truth is that the kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it as children. You'll notice here in the second part of verse 14 and then into verse 15, Jesus says, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. When Jesus said to let the children come, he gave a clear example for us all, that we should open our hearts and our arms to them and tell them of the Savior's loving call. But what Jesus does here is he he uses the illustration of children, but he teaches a much broader point about the gospel. And he explains how to enter the kingdom of God. Similar to what he told Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here, I think the kingdom of God specifically refers to the entry point of salvation. He refers to something that we understand biblically to be internal, spiritual, and heavenly. And children, in that sense, are examples of how the kingdom of God is to be entered with childlike faith. Because a child simply trusts God as a child would trust his father. How do we enter the kingdom? Through faith in the king. Now, he's not saying here that there is an innate goodness in children that makes them worthy of salvation. Because not only are we sinners by choice, but we are sinners by nature. We are born as sinners. What he's referring to here is a simple, humble faith that is willing to open its hands and receive what is given. And it's been said that age diminishes our imagination and our hopes and our possibilities, that the older we get, the more easily we say, well, that can never happen. And we grow this sense of doubt in our lives. But in a child's mind, God can do anything. A childlike faith that is filled with wonder and confidence in God unlocks the door to the kingdom of heaven. And someone said that faith shines the brightest in a childlike heart. There's been a lot of research that's been done through the years about when people come to faith and kind of what the dynamics are of the age that people get saved statistically. And there was some research that was done in recent years by the International Bible Society and the Barner Research Group that uh, really just continued other research that has been done. But here's some interesting things that they found. They found that 83% of Christians come to faith in Jesus before the age of, of 14. 83% before the age of 14. And I've heard numbers somewhere around there probably for the last 30 years that's been pretty consistent. Between the age of 14 and 18, there is a 14% probability of coming to faith in Jesus. Now, God can do anything. I've seen God save the most aged senior adult 
who had no interest in Christ at all, and God stirred their hearts. But we're just talking about, statistically speaking, the number of people who come to faith between the ages of 14 and 18, there's only a 14% probability that they'll get saved. Now listen to this. The study showed that unbelievers over the age of 19 have a 6% probability of becoming Christians. And if you progress from there, it gets less and less by the decade. We want to be good stewards of the gospel so that we're not being manipulative or giving false assurance whatsoever to children. We take it seriously. We want to be very careful with children so they understand what it means to come to faith. But I want you to know the seeds of saving faith can take root in very young children even if it takes years for it to be fully evident. And Jesus welcomes all who come to him in childlike faith. I'm grateful that God saved me as a seven-year-old boy. And I can say with confidence that by the grace of God, I've not had any significant seasons of doubt whatsoever about my faith in Christ. I know that's not everybody's experience, but I'm telling you, God put his hand on my life and I got saved when I was seven years old. And I've never doubted that Jesus Christ was my Savior and Lord. And there are children among us who have not yet come to faith in Christ who are in your homes and your families. And if they're given the seed of the gospel and the word of God and they're taught what it means to get saved, they're going to get saved and they're going to stay saved because they were genuinely saved to begin with. And if you're ever genuinely saved to begin with, it's not something that ever changes. And we can be stewards of that gospel in their lives. And we can get to be a little part of that. So the church and Christian families must take seriously the evangelization of children. This is a serious matter that we need to be serious about. There's a story from years ago about uh, the missionary Robert Moffat, who learned by his own experience the importance of not overlooking children in the 1800s. And I'm going to connect this to modern day as well, but I want you to hear this. He was preaching a particular meeting, and in that particular meeting he was in, there was only a few people that showed up. And he thought that it was pretty discouraging, disheartened a little bit, that no no more people came out than they did. But he preached his message anyway. He didn't notice in particular one boy that was there in the small group of people who had come. But before Moffat was finished, the boy had decided he wanted to be a missionary. And he wanted to tell other people about Jesus. The name of that little boy was David Livingstone. If you know anything about the history of missions, you'll know that David Livingstone became God's pioneering servant missionary to Africa. Today, in the 21st century, in 2022, as projections are looking forward to 2050 and beyond, The greatest movement of Christianity in the world is in sub-Saharan Africa. People are coming to faith in Christ in large numbers. Here's the point of that story. We must never overlook children. We pray for children. We share the gospel with children. We invest in children. Jesus affirmed and declared the spiritual capacity of children, and so should we. And we also connect the dots to say that anyone who enters into the kingdom of God, whether they be 6 or 65, must come by humbling themselves, repenting of their sins, 
believing in Jesus Christ and entering into the kingdom of God. It's the only way to be saved. Through faith in him. The kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it as children. And then the third and final truth is that Jesus blesses all who come to him. In verse 16, it says, after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Jesus took the children up in his arms and he laid his hands on them. You know what I've learned through the years? You can tell a lot about people, about how they receive children and how they treat children in their presence. You can tell a whole lot about people's hearts and what they value and what they care about and and what they're willing to invest in by how they show love to children. How did Jesus do it? Well, Jesus fervently blessed them. The idea is not just he gave them a little blessing, but, but he's blessing them fervently. And children can receive the blessings of Jesus without thinking that they deserve it or thinking that somehow they don't need it. And we should receive God's blessings in the same way because the blessing of Jesus is freely available and it is freely given. I think one of the most used words that uh, believers probably have in their vocabulary from a spiritual perspective anyway is the word blessed. We all know what it means to be blessed, at least generally speaking, it's something good. A blessing is something that, that is happy. A blessing means that we've been favored in some way in our lives. And from the very time that God created people, God created them to bless them. We are most blessed in our faith in Christ and genuine blessing is spiritual prosperity in the riches of Christ that are eternal and not temporary. They are spiritual and not material. They're lasting and not just for a moment. So as we gather together as a church, we're, at, we're here out of faithfulness, yes. We're here out of obedience, yes. But we're here because it's a blessing to be here. That's why we're here. We're here because we have a heavenly father who gave us physical life and brought us into this world. We're here because even in our sins and in our trespasses that we have a savior who came and lived and died and now lives again for us. And he invites us into the family of God because of Jesus. We can call God our father. And we're here because God has given us a purpose to life. We're not just going along to get along. We're not just going from Monday to Friday trying to survive. No, we're living our lives in such a way that we are flourishing in the things of God. That ought to be our attitude. And if that's not your attitude, what I'm here to tell you today is that you are missing out on what God intends for your life. You're missing it. Because he wants to bless you in the things that really matter. And I think here that we find the heart of Jesus evident in how he warmly received the children, but we find the hands of Jesus evident in his taking time to lay hands on them and bless them. And the word form that is used for blessed here in this verse is actually an intensive form which occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It is a level of fervor that Jesus blessed these children with that we don't find an example of anywhere else in the New Testament. He's taking it up a notch here to say this is the blessing that Jesus has for children. Some, some of you may have read uh, a book or two by Gary Thomas. He's written mostly in the area of marriage and family. Uh, but he wrote one book 
in which he gives an example of how the Heavenly Father blesses us and loves to give his children gifts. And it's a simple little example from life, but here's how, how he shared. He said, once I was walking through a McDonald's restaurant and I saw uh, eight little girls celebrating a birthday. The warmth of sheer happiness permeated the gathering. It was as if a light had been turned on and I could see God's delight. God was happy that these girls were happy. Their delight, their joy, even their giddiness had to have given God great pleasure. And he said, have you ever thought about that, that you can give God great pleasure by enjoying yourself in him? The fact that we are children of God and that Jesus urges us to become like children speaks to us of a certain demeanor, a certain delight, a certain trust in God's goodness and his favor toward us. And here's what Thomas says in closing. He says, while God's servants are not merely his children because he does call us to sacrificial and to mature service, we never become less than his children. So when we talk about the blessing of being children of God, we're talking about the blessing of the spiritual life. And that changes everything. It changes how you see your relationship with God. It changes how you live out the priorities in your home. It changes your joy and your engagement with your Christian walk on a day-to-day basis as you live your life and use the gifts God's given you. And it changes the spiritual temperature in a church. The reason that churches are dead are varied, but one of the main reasons is there's no spiritual life. And friends, if there is spiritual life, then there's going to be a vibrancy about it. That we praise God because we get to know Him and serve Him. And there's joy in the midst of the family of God as a result of that. Jesus blesses all who come to him. Now, I want to ask a question as I come toward a close and make practical application of this to our lives. How can we be faithful to bring the children to Jesus? I think it starts with a family responsibility. Train up a child in the way they should go. It's a responsibility we have if we've been entrusted with children and grandchildren. And then I think there's a church responsibility. The church is not the parent of your child. You're the parent of your child. You have primary responsibility. What are we doing as the body of Christ? We're supporting you and carrying out your primary responsibility to disciple your children if you're Christian parents. And we want to do that faithfully. But you know sometimes that parents and families... They want to just defer that responsibility to the church. And they think, well, if I take my kids to church, everything will be all right. Certainly they'll turn out as Christians. Certainly they'll turn out to be faithful. Think about it this way. Your child has somewhere around 112 waking hours each week. They spend a good portion of that in their education, whatever format that is. They spend a good portion of that in their recreational activities. They spend the balance of it in your home and in your family activities. If a family is somewhat faithful to the church, they might get one or two hours a week in the church. 
Now, this is simple math, but just track with me here. That would mean that they are spending over 98% of their time somewhere else than the church. So how could you think that you could defer your responsibility to the church when 98% of the rest of their life, if it's not spiritually directed, how could you think that one is going to win out over the other? That doesn't even make good sense. So it goes together. The family responsibility and the church responsibility to, to support you is hand in hand. And let me tell you something, parents. This is going to hurt just a little bit, but I just want to tell you this, and I want you to hear me well. If you are nominal in your faith and you live a convenient Christianity when it works for you, but otherwise you don't have time for it, if you give good lip service, but you're not really living for Christ, you should not expect that your children are going to follow you and do anything different. Don't expect it. It could happen. God can do anything. But the highest likelihood is what you do in moderation, your children are going to do in excess. And if you're not faithful and everything else distracts you and you're not living for Christ, you're making it very, very, very difficult for your children. And God's calling you to something different. He'll help you be more faithful and committed. Now, our Sprouts Children's Ministry purpose statement says this in part. We desire to introduce preschoolers and children to foundational biblical truths in the gospel of Jesus Christ through relevant, engaging, challenging, and life-changing, age-appropriate learning. And I would add to that, we seek to do so with excellence. So before I close, I want to speak about where we are in our Sprouts ministry and how you can be involved. I'll just give you some practical understanding of what it takes. It takes somewhere around 36 people to work with children between our two Bible fellowship hours. Currently, only eight of the 36 people who are serving actually have children in the Sprouts ministry. Only about one-fourth of our Sprouts ministry workers actually have children in the ministry. Now, Praise God for those of you who have served, many of you, for decades. You don't want your name known. You're not looking for attention. You do it because you feel like a call, it's a calling. You love the Lord. You love people. You love kids. You love families. And the Lord's going to honor that. But for us to move forward, here's the reality. We've got to have other people who feel that same level of calling and investment in children. And especially what it means as we grow among our younger families, our younger families need to be willing to step up and serve in those capacities to help us carry the ministry forward and be a special blessing to these children. It takes about 32 people to work with our children in our Awana ministry. 44% of our workers serve in both. And let me translate what that means. We got some people carrying a heavy load. They're doing a lot. And we do not want to lay a heavy burden on people and be unreasonable and make it where people burn out and, and give up and quit along the way. But how can that not be the case? 
if others see the significance of what we're doing as a church and see the spiritual giftings that they've been given. And we need, a lot of times you think about well, uh, how many women serve faithfully in these ministries. We have some faithful men who are serving, but you know what? We need some more faithful men. We need some men who are godly examples that, that can love children in those ministries as well and be willing to step forward and serve. You never know the difference that you'll make in that. And we need people who sense a call from God to use their spiritual gifts and not just fill a role. But you feel called to love children in the name of Jesus. And we seek not to do child care in our, in our ministries, but to truly nurture children at the appropriate age in their faith. And I close with this. When I think back on the people who have made the most profound impact on my spiritual life, many who have made the biggest difference in my life, especially since I got saved when I was seven years old, have been through children's ministries. If I had time today to tell you, I could think back and tell you stories and examples of people from over 40 years ago, so maybe more, and some of y'all can do the same. You can think about those people that only heaven knows their name, and many of them are in heaven. But they were there for you, and when you got there to that children's ministry, they welcomed you in, and they loved you, and they taught you, and they cared for you, and they made sure that you were safe. They fed you good snacks and all kinds of stuff that happens at times in children's ministry. And those people are difference makers. There is no more significant place that you can make a difference for eternity than it is in, in children's ministries. So I want to encourage, and sometimes we don't do, and I take responsibility for this, we don't do as good of a job as we should do in showing proper appreciation for those of you who serve. I want you to know that you are not taken for granted. You are deeply loved and appreciated and valued and needed and are special to the ministry of Cross Saints Baptist Church. But we need some other people to come alongside of them and help them as well. Because this is truly a, a collective effort of families, the church, and God working through both. Father, thank you today for the privilege we have to call you our Father and Jesus our Savior through the blood of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Children are so important, Jesus. You've shown us that by your example. You modeled it for us. You taught us. And you left us with the responsibility to make you known. God, I pray for the younger generations especially. It, it is a battle. It's a war out there spiritually. And there's so many things that could distract their hearts and their minds and draw them away from the purity of Christ and what it means to be a believer, to confuse their thinking and uh, get their priorities out of order. God, we want to be a part of, of a good trajectory, a good direction of children and families. Thank you for the folks that faithfully serve whose names often aren't known, who aren't often given recognition, but yet they do it week in and week out. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, they would be encouraged and know that what they're doing matters. It matters now, and it matters eternally. And I pray that you would find us faithful in it. Lord, maybe there's somebody here today or who will be listening to this message who has never entered the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven as a child. 
I pray they'd be willing to repent and believe, come to faith in Christ, and have their life forever changed. God, we give this time of commitment and response over to you, and we ask that you'd use it as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.